Sally was competitive and showed in her tennis. She started when she was 10 and she would stick with it through high school and college. She would become a nationally ranked player, ready to achieve great heights in the sport, but that wasn't going to be her future. Sally met Tam when she was 12. They both loved tennis and they trained together and they formed a bond. When Sally let it go many years later, frustrated after taking a long, hard look, as she put it, at her forehand, she was good, but unlikely to be the best. Tam stayed with it and went on to be a professional tennis player. She played at Wimbledon and at the US National Championships, which we now call the US Open. She was a rising star, and Sally was too. Despite enjoying her privacy, she enjoyed working hard, and a future in the limelight was imminent. Sally's family were Californian and Presbyterian, and her sister Bear, or Karen, as it says on her birth certificate, would become a minister in the church. Sally's parents weren't exactly physical scientists. They were church elders. Her mother was a volunteer counsellor at a women's correctional facility, her father a professor of political science. But she enjoyed physics, and they encouraged her, and she excelled. She was told that her mind was too scientific to be a scientist. There wasn't enough art in there. And she was smart, but wasted in science. Sally was competitive, and she disagreed. So she got a bachelor's degree in English. And in physics. And she got a master's in physics. Then a PhD. Astrophysics and free electron lasers were her thing. And that was when she saw in the college newspaper a call from NASA for new people to join the space program. So she applied with over 8,000 others, and she was selected. Sally Ride would become an astronaut. This is Intersect from Communicating Science. You're listening to Episode 3, Mustang Sally. When Sally joined NASA in 1978, one of six women in a class of 35, she got to work training for a space flight. NASA liked that Sally was an all-rounder. She was intelligent, sure, but her tennis and her tenacity gave her an edge. NASA needed someone who could collaborate and work alone. Someone who could follow the rules and think on their feet. Someone who was calm under pressure. And Sally was all of those things. And she was an astrophysicist. They liked that too. And though she continued her research, she threw herself into other projects. NASA was going to space in reusable shuttles, and there was a lot of work to be done. But the world hadn't missed NASA's first intake of women. The media attention was astounding, but nothing like what it would become. The first shuttle launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida on the 12th of April in 1981 a feat of human engineering and ingenuity, piloted by veteran astronaut John Young and rookie Bob Crippen. Sally would have watched the launch, nervous and excited. She would work as the ground-based capsule communicator, or CAPCOM, for the second and third missions. A total of two out of the four test flights for the program. Sally was the first woman to be given that responsibility. She was excelling. She became interested in robotics and worked on the Canadarm, a 15-metre-long robotic arm that would allow the astronauts to reach out from the shuttle into space. And she became an expert. 
She spent hours and hours training and was better at wrangling the arm than the pilots who were meant to operate it. In July of 1982, Sally married Stephen Hawley, a fellow astronaut, someone who understood the trials and tribulations. Sally flew her own plane to the wedding. When Bob Crippen, that rookie from the first shuttle flight, now a seasoned astronaut, was asked to pilot the seventh mission, STS-7, the one to test the Canada arm for the first time, he wanted NASA to send the arm's best operator. And they did. And Sally Ride became the first female astronaut in space. But Sally wasn't the first woman in space, not by a long shot. Russia had sent Velatina Tereshkova 20 years earlier, and Svetlana Savitskaya just the year before Sally flew. But it was the 80s, and they were cosmonauts, so they didn't count. If Sally thought the media attention was uncomfortable before, she was in for a shock. The questions they asked were astonishing. Would the female astronauts be the ones to do the cooking on board? How would she tie up that curly hair? Would she weep when things went wrong on the job? Ride was disappointed and said as much. Witty, direct and cutting. She had a job to do, one that no one else could do as well as she could. Sally was competitive and she was the best. And she flew straight into the history books. Six days, two hours, 23 minutes and 59 seconds on Challenger just over four million kilometres. The first female astronaut in space. The first woman to use the robotic arm in space. The first person ever to catch a satellite. She returned a hero. And she would fly again when Crippen insisted that he needed her, that he trusted her and her alone to stand in as commander. So she joined as a mission specialist for NASA's 13th space shuttle mission on the 5th of October in 1984. Eight days, five hours, 23 minutes and 33 seconds. Again on Challenger. Over 5.2 million kilometres. And she returned again. For the last time. Sally trained for a third mission, but it was cancelled when an O-ring failed in January 1986. And Challenger, that shuttle that had taken Sally beyond the Earth twice now, ended in a ball of flame taking seven of her colleagues with it. But Sally was far from done. She was named to the Rogers Commission to find out what had gone wrong, and she suspected that it was the O-ring, and she quietly told General Donald Coutinho, another member on the commission, who would go on to be lauded for figuring out what went wrong. And she stood by Roger Beaujolais, the man who had warned about the O-ring not a year before the disaster, the man who tried to stop that launch, but was ignored as NASA tried to meet its promises to the US government. Sally stood by him when no one else did. The spotlight wasn't where Sally wanted to be, but she knew what was right. And she worked hard. And she excelled. Sally's marriage to Stephen broke down in 1987. I can't tell you why, but... I can tell you that Sally hadn't exactly been honest. She had another lover. A lover that she had known for most of her life. 
See, Sally wasn't just the first female astronaut. She was also the first gay one. Sally was in love with the girl she had played tennis with all those years ago. She was in love with Tam O'Shaughnessy. Since this is intersect, you've probably come to suspect that this story probably won't end well for Sally. And you'd be right, in a way. Sally achieved much more in her career, but I think that it's a good idea to jump ahead here. Sally Ride died in July in 2012, just 17 months after she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She was 61. Before her death, Tam asked Sally whether or not she could talk about their relationship after she was gone. Sally said, whatever you do is fine by me. And it was. And she came out to the world in her obituary that she and Tam had been in a relationship for 27 years. During those 27 years, Sally achieved a whole lot more. She wrote a seminal paper about NASA's leadership and founded NASA's Office of Exploration. She left NASA in 1987, but she did not leave the spotlight. She taught at universities, wrote children's books, and even tried her hand in acting. In 2001, she started Sally Ride Science with TAM, a public outreach program aimed at bringing young women to science and technology. She served on the Accident Investigation Board when Space Shuttle Columbia exploded in 2003. She was the only person to serve on both of those investigations. She was honoured with awards from bodies across the US, and amongst it all, Tam stood by her, silent and proud. Sally was competitive, and she excelled, and in many ways she won. She earned her outstanding life, and found her reward in Tam O'Shaughnessy. And Tam has carried on Sally's legacy. This is the last episode of the Intersect podcast for now. Intersect is a short series of a story told each week about the places where science intersects with life. Intersect is produced by Communicating Science, bringing science to your daily commute. Find interesting science news twice a day on Facebook and Twitter by searching for at commutersci, that's commuter S-C-I. If you've got an interesting person you think it would be worth resurrecting Intersect to talk about, let us know. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or via your podcatcher of choice in case we do. Music for Intersect comes from Poddington Bear. You've been listening to Intersect, Episode 3. I'm Nate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>